Ecuador, where I started out to the north of Peru, was really one of the places that very much changed my life. I mean, it really set me on the course uh, that I am. My guest today is a retired senior foreign service officer from the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID. Having worked on and off with the agency primarily overseas on diplomatic assignments from 1990 to 1992 and 1999 to 2019 in the Peru, Nicaragua, Angola, Nigeria, Iraq, Afghanistan, South Africa, and the Southern African USAID regional missions. That's a lot of places. He provided oversight to U.S. government foreign aid development and humanitarian assistance and supported U.S. ambassadors as their senior development officer on multiple U.S. embassy country teams. In South Africa, he helped establish the Southern Africa Regional Leadership Center as part of President Obama's Young African Leadership Initiative. He previously worked as the Global Program Coordinator for the International Save the Children Alliance Secretariat and as a Country Director and a Health Sector Coordinator for different nonprofit private voluntary organizations, including CARE and Plan International in a range of countries, including Ecuador, Bolivia, the Dominican Republic, and the UK. My guest today is Alan J. Alonzo Wind. AJ, I'm Aidan Nepom, and this is the Changed Podcast. This is episode 53 of the Changed Podcast. Here's AJ's story. I went down to Ecuador as a Peace Corps volunteer uh, frankly, uh, very much still caught up with the electoral politics from the United States that I was very much involved in in college at the University of Chicago. And I thought, you know, perhaps almost in a Clintonian way, that being a Peace Corps volunteer would help improve my electability. And I imagined being able to serve in Peace Corps, then return to the United States, run for office, maybe run for state representative, maybe run for Congress. And that's the direction that I saw my life going in. But uh, frankly, during the course of two years working in public health and nutrition, uh, helping to build latrines, helping to guide families to creating family gardens and the like, uh, digging wells, I just found myself drawn into the needs of the poor campesinos in uh, the rural coastal area of Ecuador where I was living in. And as it would turn out, I had the Ecuadorian Minister of Health himself coming down and getting familiar with my work. I actually had a certain amount of notoriety, if I can say that, even uh, as a Peace Corps volunteer, because as part of my work, I ended up encouraging these doctors I was working with to think about, let's create this radio health education program. And we contacted a local radio producer in the city of Quevedo in Ecuador. And uh, we soon created this program. And uh, my voice was often on this radio health show, which included uh, folklore music and entertainment and the like, all designed to make more palatable the kind of health and educational messages that we wanted to convey over here. And it was a powerful broadcaster. I mean, 50,000 watts meant to cover the entire country. And the Peace Corps director at that time, I won't mention his name, he heard it, and it, his basic response was, NFW, who is this American, this Peace Corps volunteer I'm hearing on the radio? I didn't agree to that. And, you know, there was noise about, oh, yeah, we got to do something about it. But the Minister of Health loved it and actually asked the Peace Corps country director, saying, oh, we got to keep this guy. we got to keep Dr. Alonso. Would you be willing to have him stay on for a third year as a Peace Corps volunteer? And of course, the Peace Corps bureaucracy, they said, you know, NFW. But the minister himself contacted international NGOs that were working in the area and said, you have to try to hire this guy. We want this guy to stay on. And by that time, frankly, I was primed. I was 
caught up in the romanticism of the kind of work I was doing, and I didn't want to go home. I soon ended up staying five years in Ecuador, and uh, frankly, the die was set at that point. Uh, after five years in Ecuador, I was headhunted to go to Bolivia to be the country director of a NGO there, running what was at first a modest health program in southeastern Bolivia, and soon became a, a large health and international development, integrated rural development project involving a good chunk of Bolivia. And by that point, there really was no no turning back to that, you know, political career I had imagined at one point. You've heard his story. Now it's time to meet AJ. I recorded this conversation with AJ Alonzo Wind in July of 2022. AJ, hi. hi. Well, I I I guess I'll start by asking... Where in the world are you? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be able to join you for this. And I am speaking to you from the very interesting environment of East Jerusalem, what is known here, at least among the people I work with, as the OPT, the Occupied Palestinian Territory. Uh, So you're definitely not retired, just retired from specific work listed in your bio. You're no longer working for the U.S. government. Is that right? That's right. I left during the uh, previous administration, and uh, I dedicated some time to travel with my wife and uh, uh, connecting with our daughter, who had actually remained in South Africa when we left South Africa, as I was getting ready for departure from the agency. She ended up getting married in South Africa. And then, as it turned out, uh, moved to Berlin, to Germany, when her husband got a a great job there. I also worked on a book uh, that ended up coming out in English, Spanish, as well as audio uh, versions. And uh, feeling a little antsy, I ended up uh, interviewing late last year for uh, the position of mission director in Palestine with the International Medical Corps and actually arrived out here in February of this year. So what is it, what's it like over there right now? You know, it's really remarkable because I end up having the incredible luxury of being able to spend roughly half and half my time divided between Jerusalem which is a very unique environment, unlike really any city in the world. So, you know, I I lived in Israel in uh, 1995 and 1996. I was there when Rabin was assassinated. When we first met, I think we talked about that a little bit. Um, And one of the things that was really striking to me at the time was um, that it didn't seem greatly different culturally to me in terms of Israeli people versus Palestinian people, uh, the way people talk to each other as friends and families and neighbors, um, that there wasn't just a great amount of difference. Now, many years later, as that sort of evolved as Israel and Palestine have sort of been separate but together in, in new and different ways. Well, I think, Aiden, that the, the, the assassination of Rabin in 95, of course, uh, was a huge blow. But then 10 years later, there was an additional blow that I think in some way magnified it even more. Hmm. And that was that, to a certain extent, as the Oslo peace process continued somewhat haltingly uh, in terms of uh, trying to address the situation in Gaza and the rest of the West Bank, um, the uh, decision was made to pull out of Gaza. And, you know, the Israeli government, this is, I guess, 2005, 2006, very bravely at the time uh, decided, okay, we're literally going to rip out from the roofs the Israeli settlements that were in the Gaza Strip. I guess there were probably about 40,000, 50,000 Israelis that were living in Gaza at that time. We're going to pull them out. We're going to grant Gaza full autonomy. Uh, They can run their own affairs, and that'll be it. So they demolished all of these houses and installations rather than leaving it for the Palestinians, of course. And uh, 
Then uh, this was followed. This was really, I think, in many ways, uh, a serious emotional blow to the Israelis in terms of being forced to actually leave Gaza. And the fact that they didn't follow up with the West Bank to a certain extent sealed the fate of the West Bank uh, territory and the fact that the particularly the right wing government would continue building settlements there. But then you had democratic elections in the Palestinian territories. Uh, and frankly, as a result of so many years of corrupt government under Arafat and the Al-Fatah group of the PLO and the like, the Gazans ended up electing Hamas. And of course, Hamas was on the US list as a terrorist organization. The EU was kind of pressured into doing that as well. And so with Hamas taking power in Gaza, uh, everyone went hysterical on that. US policy changed drastically in terms of help for the Palestinians. Uh, it became much more cautious and tentative uh, even before you know, we got into this situation of the, the last administration and the cuts that they made to assistance with the Palestinians. But then basically the Israelis instituted what is known as the Gaza blockade, the Gaza siege. And actually last month was the 15th anniversary of the blockade. And essentially from this territory of the Palestinians, where you're now, it's, it's minuscule. You know, as you probably know from when you were in Israel, you're talking about a territory which is about six miles wide and 25 miles long, stretching from Ashkelon in the north to the border with Egypt. And you've got over 2 million Palestinians there. 20 years ago, typically about 10% of that population, 200,000, 300,000 Palestinians were allowed and in fact encouraged to come to work in Israel in the agriculture field, in the home care field, you know, in, in important ways for the economy. And the Israelis closed the door and mm. built, for all practical speaking, the, the real wall. And instantly, the, the economic well-being of the Palestinians in Gaza dropped. I mean, they now estimate that 20, you know, 15 years ago, the Palestinians in Gaza were more or less at a better level of economic development than the West Bank. Now they say that the economic situation of the Palestinians in Gaza is one quarter of that of the West Bank. And the West Bank itself, as a result of much has gone on, is maybe a third of Israel proper. So how long can that continue? It does not seem very sustainable. That's for sure. But I also, um, I also wonder, uh, you know, I, I'm not a foreign policy maker. I'm, you know, I work in communication skills. I've often fantasized about being able to pull diplomats from both sides into a room and facilitate the real conversation. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen in my lifetime, but maybe. Um, but I wonder, you know, there's, a, there's, the consequences are very real. And at the same time, there was a lot of rhetoric. I remember going to see a speaker when I was working for um, APAC in D.C. The Middle East Affairs folks put on a, 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 a weekly or a monthly event where they would bring in speakers that, was from, that were from all, all sort of sides of the issue. And it was a former uh, advisor to Arafat who came to speak, and he seemed incredibly reasonable during his speech. His speech was like, and when I say reasonable, I mean like inspiring levels of reason and talking about, you know, women and children being allowed to thrive and um, men have to be able to find their livelihoods. And I just was like 100% on board with everything he was saying. And then he was asked a question about bus bombings, which I, at the time I was living in Israel, there were uh, several, and I have my own story of getting off of a bus because of feeling afraid. And uh, he was asked this question about bus bombings. Is it okay to bomb women and children? And his answer was, they're not women and children on that side. They're soldiers, and they deserve to die for our freedom. 
and I was, he lost me. <laughs> it's like, eh, how can this be? And so I think there was a lot of rhetoric uh, about like it, it, Israelis of any age, including being infants, deserve to die for the freedom of Palestinians. Um, and so while I think the wall is a, you know, personal opinion, a terrible solution, wall, essentially walling off the livelihood of people where there were neighbors and friends um, and having those very real economic consequences, that does not seem like a good solution. But I also see the fear behind that solution. I see the the very real worry based on the experiences. I I wonder if you have thoughts about what would have been a better course or what or if peace is even possible at this point. I completely understand understand where you and others come from in that way. And I've met many Palestinians like you describe. Uh, they floor you with their depth of humanity and their empathy and their vision. And really, they just want to be left alone. They just want to be able to live their lives in a way without having to deal with the violence. Said. True, but consider this, Aiden. Consider this. It's terrible what has happened in terms of the terror bombings and all of that. And I don't want to, you know, put a number or defend acts of terror. But we also have to understand there is an element of proportionality. And I mean proportionality in the sense that if you were to add up the numbers of Israelis that were killed and maimed during the campaign of the bus bombings and the terror attacks. And even now, I mean, you've had uh, in this last uh, number of months, shootings in a couple of restaurants in Tel Aviv and, uh, you know, creating a certain element, a lack of perception of safety and security at times for people. Let's say you add all of that up and you're you're really talking about perhaps a few hundred perhaps 400, perhaps 500 Israelis that were killed and maimed over the course of that campaign of uh, 15, 20 years. But on the Palestinian side, you're talking about thousands and thousands of women and children who also have been killed and maimed because you have indiscriminate warfare on both sides, unfortunately. It's not to do defend. You, do you think that there's a feeling that those scales somehow have to be balanced in order to achieve peace? My, I would hope not, personally. But like, no, no. One more death on either think, side be one death too many. No, I mean certainly, certainly. Uh, I mean, you you don't want to get locked into kind of uh, you know an eye for an eye kind of mentality. What's the, an eye for an eye, and pretty soon you know everyone is blind. But uh, Still, I mean, it is essential for Israelis to put themselves in the shoes of the Palestinians, try and look over the course of what's happened over the last 15 years, the last 20 years, the last 50 years. And there has to be an, some level of empathy, which unfortunately in the Israeli leadership has rarely been seen in terms of accepting that they too have a right to a life without violence, a life in which they can provide for their families, a life where you don't have children and families being poisoned by contaminated water, by sewage, uh, by uh, heavy metals, uh, by the elements of warfare, you know, across uh, both lands. And, uh, you know, Gaza is one thing, the West Bank is the other. I mean, how can you defend? I mean, you, you have uh, Secretary of State Blinken. He, he and President Biden just came here. And they're still talking about, oh, we still hope for a two-state solution. Well, how is that going to happen without respect for both states in terms of actually giving the Palestinians the land that corresponds to them and, uh, you know, allowing the Israelis, of course, to feel secure within their borders? It really is an element of proportionality because no one believes that, you know, even Hamas, as we were talking about earlier, you know, the fact that they're seen as a terrorist group, you know, by both the U.S. and the EU, 
the reality in Gaza, at least that I've seen, is that, you know, people voted in Hamas because they were tired of the corruption that existed from the past. Unfortunately, there hasn't been an alternative democratic movement in terms of challenging the status quo. If there were elections in the West Bank tomorrow, and frankly, neither the Israelis nor the Americans want to see that happening, because if there are elections tomorrow, Hamas would probably win on the West Bank as well. Unless you have the kinds of steps that are necessary to really show that you're serious about peace and a so-called uh, equitable two-state solution, then you know, you're never going to be able to contain that type of violence. Is peace possible? Do you think it's possible to achieve peace? You know, I listened to a number of Palestinians here in Jerusalem, and uh, it's interesting that many of them have given up on the idea of the two-state solution. They've surrendered the idea of a Palestinian homeland. They figure Israel is never going to let them have uh, their own country. And so they say, okay, fine, we'll just we'll live here, you know, within Israel. We're here, we're in East Jerusalem. We're, we're, we're working within Israel. Those of the Palestinians that have permits to actually live and work in Israel. But then, of course, you have the question, what will happen demographically to Israel? I mean, Israel always reacts with anger and horror when you have the UN Special Rapporteur talking about an apartheid state. Well, I've been to South Africa quite a few times, and I lived in South Africa from 2014 to 2018. And I saw what was the, the remnants, the remains still that's been hard to overcome despite the best efforts of the South Africans of the apartheid regime. Well, Israel is frankly not far from that. I mean, if you don't deal with the reality that uh, you have uh, millions of Palestinians living within these common borders, will Israel be able to remain a Jewish state? Will Israel be able to remain a democratic state? Or will there be you know, a one-state solution, but with a permanently disenfranchised Palestinian minority, which at some point may not be a minority. It may come to approach, you know, a, a very large chunk of the population. So, you know, I think until that question is honestly answered by both sides, we'll never see peace. Hmm. So a two-state solution seems not possible, but maybe in theory, a one-state solution with a representative with equal representation for the populations? Is that what is that what people are saying? But, but Israel then would have to probably give up on its idea of being a changes. Jewish state, a theocratic state. And, uh, you know, in many ways, Israel has become more and more theocratic. I mean, look at uh, Jerusalem. Everything gets shut down on Shabbat, basically from Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock until Saturday at uh, 6 or 7 p.m., uh, lots of services, lots of, uh, you know, uh, transport and everything else is, is completely shut down. How long can that really uh, continue when you're faced with a very different type of uh, demographic reality? We're going to take a little break here instead of continuing to discuss the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for 17 more hours. You'll learn a little bit about what it's like to sort of live everywhere like AJ has, and we'll get a dip into AJ's experience as a science fiction writer. All of that and more when we come back. What I'd love to do is switch gears a little bit and just talk about you a little bit, because this is this is in the course of your career, just like, a, honestly, like a blip, like you've done so much and lived in so many places. Um, what what is that what is it like to just live your life out there do you have a a home base do you have a place that you're like and that and then this is home well i think we probably have uh, multiple bases on some level uh south africa frankly 
still remains very close to our hearts. Um, of course, our daughter is now in Berlin. And so we look to Europe at times in terms of thinking about whether or not perhaps we might want to consider relocating to, to Europe. Uh, maybe not necessarily Germany, but maybe something more pleasant like uh, Portugal or something like that. Uh, but uh, my wife is originally from Peru. Our daughter was born in Peru. And so Peru and South America, of course, always remains very close to us. I love the uh, just that journey. Just it's sometimes I think the the people that we encounter can just sort of change the entire direction that you're headed in. Do you ever wonder what your life would have been like had you gone into politics? Do you do you have a sense of how that would have turned out? Sometimes, sometimes. But uh, you know, to be honest, I, I think I have faced in my life probably several different, uh, I don't know what you could call it, collisions, uh, you know, blows, sudden course changes where, you know, it really represented a life-changing moment. I mean, frankly, even going back to, to when I was a kid, uh, and I, I tell the story in my book that I, I published a, a year or two ago, uh, I, I was uh, growing up in Brooklyn in uh, South Brooklyn, and we moved to this kind of uh, newly developed area in southeastern Brooklyn called Georgetown Mill Basin near Paddockett Bay, kind of bordering what would eventually become the Jamaica Bay Wildlife Reserve. And as it would turn out, in my fifth grade of elementary school, this coincided with the beginning of Earth Day. You know, the first Earth Day is of 1969, 1970, and I was caught up in this idea of ecology, uh, Earth Day, and wanting to do more. And I ended up organizing a bunch of school kids you know, from the fifth grade to try and help clean out these vacant lots that were filled with kind of concrete waste and uh, earth tires and all this other kind of stuff that were really polluting the environment. And we were able to get Con Edison, the electricity utility, uh, in New York at the time to donate a bunch of uh, dump trucks. Uh, I mobilized uh, some of the Brooklyn City Council people as well to get involved in it. And soon the, you know, you had reporters from the New York Post talking about, you know, this revolutionary stuff in ecology that these fifth graders were doing in this part <laughs> of Brooklyn. And they ended up featuring a story about me you know, talking about me as the ringleader of all, of all of this. So that too, you know, ended up setting me on a course that as it would turn out, pulled me out of my neighborhood and got me thinking, okay, I don't want to go to the neighborhood high school. I want to be able to go beyond it. I ended up taking a test for the different specialized schools and uh, ended up being uh, accepted for Stuyvesant High School in Manhattan. And that as well became the kind of thing that set me off in a different direction because I found myself at school. I don't know if you ever heard of uh, Frank McCourt, the Irish-American writer, Angela's Ashes. and Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Famous Irish-American writer. Well, Frank, before he became a published author and a famous Irish-American writer, actually was teacher, an English teacher in the New York City school system. And he taught at a couple of terrible schools, which he ended up telling stories about this in some of his memoirs. But then he came to Stuyvesant High School, which was famous as being this kind of center of nerddom, a school of science and math and all this. Yeah. And here you have this Irish, you know, this happy Irish American with this rogue, you know, teaching English. And he ended up teaching creative writing. And I myself ended up taking on a passion for science fiction. And so I ended up being encouraged by the chairman of the English department to go into Frank's class. I quickly found Frank to be my mentor, both in writing as well as helping me to launch this science fiction magazine, Antares, which we actually began to sell on the streets of Manhattan during my last two years of high school. And oh uh, that got me into a whole direction uh, between meeting science fiction writers like Isaac Asimov and others, you know, as a kid, selling my first 
science fiction story when I was 14 years old and setting me off in a direction that I thought would have me, you know, becoming a published author. Paradox of paradox, I actually only published my first book just, you know, last year. <laughs> it's not science fiction, but I do tell the story in the book about how my early work in science fiction was a good preparation for government service. <laughs> I'm a huge science fiction fan. Reading Asimov was a, p- a pivotal moment. It sh- totally shifted my worldview as a kid uh, in high school. Well, so, so, so in in these these moments that put you on these paths and then shifted your path, I'm curious, like in general terms, what what are your thoughts about these things that sort of shift and change us do you think that your view of the world is affected by these moments or do you think that you would have had the view of the world that you had no matter what path you ended up on i'm sure there's an influence an important influence to it i think if i could point to some theme some undercurrent theme of commonality uh, in a lot of the different experiences i i have i'd like to believe that it is a question of service. I mean, from from really the start, I've always viewed myself as, uh, even before I could uh, express it as such, as a change agent, as someone with the ability to influence others, to mobilize others, whether, you know, in terms of different political campaigns or other types of mobilization, uh, political activities in school, in terms of student government and and lobbying in downstate uh, Illinois, going to Peace Corps. Uh, But it also left me with a sort of receptivity to be able to accept new challenges along the way. And perhaps as uh, something of a reality, if I found myself staying too long in a particular niche, in a particular area, I would get bored. I wanted to take on new challenges but new challenges of service, ideally. And I think I've tried to view that as, to a certain extent, the, uh, you know, the, the leading uh, theme of my life. Thanks for those thoughts. I love those thoughts. They are relatable. Thank you. Uh, something that I am really curious about these days is when it comes to this word change, I mean, I've been, I've been diving into people's stories about the moments that sort of shape lives um, and the question of whether or not change is easy or hard. But I think that question was answered pretty well in the first two seasons. The answer is, yeah, of course it's both. Duh. You know, it's easy for some changes. It's hard for other changes. It's easy for some people. It's hard for other people. For some of us, most of us, it's both at different times. But what I'm curious about these days is what, what changes people's minds? Like what, have you ever had a, a really closely held point of view, a belief that was challenged and shifted as a result of an experience you had? Or have you found that you've maintained sort of the same perspective on most things? Your strongly held beliefs have sort of been part of the underlying value system of you throughout. That's a very uh, deep question. Um I have had things, I think, that have um, shaken and humbled me at different times um, in terms of experiences. Um, I think, uh, you know, particularly uh, the time that I spent in Africa, um, both uh, in in initial short-term assignments, when I would travel and go and work for like a week or two, or a month at times in different African countries between West Africa and East Africa. And then after uh, the year uh, 2005, when actually uh, I ended up uh, living with my family, uh, probably a total of about 10 years or so in different African countries, um, that probably uh, uh, introduced uh, an element of humility to me where, you know, certainly I viewed in a uh, very conventional way that, oh, I'm not racist. Uh, You know, I had a very 
multi-racial uh, uh, group of classmates in Stuyvesant at the time, and I had friends of different backgrounds. Uh, at least that's what I probably was kidding myself uh, on some level. Uh, but, uh, you know, living in post-war Angola uh, in the, the circumstances that we were in, and then uh, going to uh, a place like Nigeria and finding myself caught up in the realities of uh, what was the Christian South and the Muslim North really forced me to question the kind of assumptions that uh, you know I might make in terms of uh, you know basically how people lived and what were the drivers affecting them and what was the the true effect of you know the outside forces the the colonialist forces on these countries in real terms, not the ideological, uh, you know, theoretical stuff that, of course, I learned in college. So I think that, you know, those experiences really forced me to confront uh, really within myself the fact that, uh, you know, I was uh, perhaps uh, not as uh, liberated or enlightened in certain ways as uh, I, I might have thought when I was growing up in New York, when I was in Chicago, when I was living, uh, you know, in Latin America. And so uh, that's been important. And now I find myself kind of uh, questioning it again because I've been listening to an audiobook just in the last week uh, by uh, John McWhorter. I don't know if you know him. Uh, no. He has, uh, I think he's a, he's a brilliant uh, linguist uh, from Columbia University in New York, a professor there, uh, and he's published a bunch of books. Uh, but uh, most recently, he published a book on woke racism. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. frankly, it's brilliant because, I mean, he's an African-American uh, who is confronting you know, what is, what is the reality behind this concept of wokeness? And what are the drivers that bring, you know, your traditional white liberals into, you know, trying to align themselves to it? And what are the drivers, the true drivers for the Blacks who are uh, going along with the concept of wokeness and how this really represents uh, a terrible and pernicious form of racism itself that is really looking down on the Black, on the African-American as basically being a, an impotent child who cannot thrive on his own without all of the special adjustments and corrections that we need to do, you know, within the concept In of, the name of equity. Uh, I agree. I, uh, this is something that I've thought deeply about, and I have, I've had many conversations with colleagues who, in the, in the interest of wanting to create diverse representation in the theater world, have created programs that have a kind of, a, I think, an insidious message underlying, which is that if we didn't create equity, there would be none. It's a damaging story, actually. Yeah. Um, that this story, a story that I that I grew up with that I think is actually a beautiful story, an inspiring story, is that just by the nature of being on this planet, by existing, you are entitled to make your dreams come true, to go for it, to go forth, to get the best possible education, to all that, whatever it is you want to pursue, you can pursue it. And there is, I think, this disparity that we have failed to reconcile between um, the ability to pursue something and needing to provide avenues for which people can pursue something. And then the reality that not everybody gets to pursue what they want to pursue by the nature of just life living and the pressures they're in. But to say that, well, they wouldn't be able to pursue something, that's where the damaging message Absolutely can live. And again, I feel like this puts me back in that boat where I'm like, look, I don't think a wall is a good solution in Israel. I don't think that the the story that we're telling now is a good, helpful story. I also 
have no idea what the solution is. Um, you know, because it, it is true. We don't have necessarily equity when we have equality. I don't know if that's a bad thing or a good thing. I just, and I don't know what the solutions are. But what I w would hate to see happen is for a, ter a terrible story to be told so often that people believe themselves incapable of realizing their dreams. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think our openness to these kinds of questions and trying to shake up the paradigms that we're living with is is really, uh, you know, the only way to kind of carry forward, at least the way I've seen it. Well, I appreciate I appreciate your openness to sharing those thoughts. And I'll have links, of course, to your book and uh, the one that you just referenced, because I think it's always nice to have um, have the ability to follow up on these for people listening. You may want to uh, read a book or two and, and see what you think. Make up your own mind about these ideas. Um, I I sometimes wonder, and I think this is what I'll be continuing to question throughout this season, if if the changing our mind about a closely held belief is simply a thing that comes with a particular period of our development, followed after that with a solidifying of our views before we uh, end our journey, uh, if it's just sort of developmental. I think about like some of my closely held beliefs that were shaken up and they were shaken up when I just had a dose of reality, right? Like I was like, like one of my, just to bring it full circle back to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, before I ever went to Israel, I was always like, all this dispute over the Temple Mount, it's a really simple solution. Just divide it up. Everybody gets a piece and everybody's happy. Like, <laughs> like King Solomon. Yeah, just cut it up divvy it out. Everybody gets a piece of the cake, the holy cake. It's all good. And uh, and then I went to uh, to the uh the Wailing Wall. I went, you know, and visited the Temple Mount. I um, and I I had what what I would describe as the uh, thousands of years of history wash over me at once, and uh, a very intense epiphany that felt like uh, it sucked the wind out of my sails that I didn't know what the hell I was talking about <laughs> and that that wasn't a solution. And, um, and again, I don't know what the solution is. I, I am, I only know in that particular case what it isn't. And um, I think it takes important humbling moments like that for people to come together and have the conversations they need to have in order to find what it is, what the solution is. And until we get there, we don't get what we want, which is calm, peace, love, and humility. Well, you, you know, in the, uh, the category of giving your, uh, your viewers and uh, listeners uh, something else to kind of chew on, I recommend this uh, series, an Israeli television show that's on Netflix called uh, Fauda. Are you familiar with it? I have not seen it, no. Uh, you know, I, I ended up actually watching all three seasons that are on uh, Netflix now. There's a fourth season that has been in production earlier this year and is now on Israeli television and I think will be on Netflix uh, later this year. But basically, Fauda is Arabic for the word chaos. And it follows essentially this Israeli counterterrorism group uh, as they try to deal with the challenge, of course, of Palestinian extremists and containing uh, violence on the West Bank, uh, trying to contain uh, violence spilling over into Israel. But even though it's an Israeli television program, uh, the, the seasons, the first two seasons take place primarily on the West Bank, uh, a little bit in Israel, and ostensibly, the third season, to my amusement, takes place supposedly in Gaza itself, including Khan Yunis, this very densely populated city in the southern part of Gaza. But it actually has a remarkably empathetic view about the reality facing the Palestinians, about the, uh, the conflict 
that exists within many Palestinians. And it also has, you know, a very serious look at the excesses on the Israeli side and how Israeli extremism, uh, you know, in the pursuit of security can also manifest itself. And, you know, how some of the people in this counterterrorism group end up doing really terrible things. I mean, it's, it's not for the faint-hearted, but if you're interested in terms of something that will kind of shake up your paradigms and your models, I think it's a good show. Hmm. Thank you for the recommendation. I'll certainly check it out. Um, you know, it's the, I see parallels in how we are currently living in this country between extremist views being pitted against extremist views. Um, so often the moderate perspective gets lost no matter what country, no matter what circumstance, whether we're talking about politics, religion, or both. Very true. Very true. And uh, I really admire, you know, those who, uh, you know, speak on the, you know, basically the democratic side, if you could call it that, democratic or, or hopefully more moderate side of the democratic side, who argue that, uh, you know, look for that more balanced middle if we can find it. Absolutely. I uh, I am a strong believer in having important, difficult, challenging conversations well. It is the focus of the work that I do in the workplace. Um, and luckily for me, for the people who come uh, see me speak or, or take a workshop for me, those are skills that translate outside of the workplace as well. But the reason I do that work is because I believe so deeply uh, in what you just said. I believe so deeply that in order to find the path forward, we need these balanced perspectives. We need to take in the point of view of the extremist on the right and the extremist on the left, and then find where we actually live in, in the middle. Where, we do, where do we overlap? Where do we want the same things? Where are our values aligned? And how can we move forward considering our different needs inside those values? I uh, I am aware of the time. Any last reflections on what it means to be an agent of change or to feel and experience change in your own perspectives? Anything you want to share, AJ? Thank you very much. Well, I'm proud of this book, Andean Adventures. It's available on uh, Amazon as well as Barnes & Noble and other outlets. Um, because a lot of it uh, primarily takes place in Latin America, it reflects on essentially the uh, the change in my life direction over the course of the first 13, 14 years uh, that I ended up living in Latin America and taking on this commitment to international development and humanitarian assistance. And really my adventures primarily in the, the Andean countries of Ecuador, Bolivia, and Peru. Uh, Peru, where I ended up ultimately meeting my wife and our daughter was born. It's available as an audiobook. It's translated in Spanish. And I'm slowly working on companion volume to kind of tell the story, particularly I think of Africa, uh, the, the countries in Africa that I served, as well as Iraq and Afghanistan, and to try to weave together what those experiences have meant for us. So I hope people will like it. The subtitle of it is an unexpected search for meaning, purpose, and discovery across three countries. <laughs> I feel like that sentence could describe so many of my listeners' lives, minus the three countries. That, that number could probably change depending on the person. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight chatting with you from Yerushalayim. Yeah, thank you so much. I, uh, I'm honored that you have, uh, have spent this time with me from all the way across the the continents and seas. Um, so yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. And of course, uh, for all of my audience members, go check out the show notes. There will be links to all of the things that we've discussed in those notes. Thank you so much. Closing thoughts are right after this. In 1995, I was living in Israel on a kibbutz, and I remember a busload of people had gone to a peace rally. It was where Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated. He was prime minister of Israel, and at the time, the greatest hope for peace. His assassination came not from the hands 
of a Palestinian, but instead by the hands of a fellow Jew. The people on the kibbutz where I lived were devastated. I am not exaggerating when I say I watched people pour out of a bus and lay on the ground as if they too had been shot. The sound of wailing shook me to my core and I thought the world was going to end. But the world did not end. 24 hours later, everyone was back to living. There were jokes being made and laughter, and when I asked how people were able to move on so quickly, they said life is for the living. It would be a dishonor to the dead to think any longer about them. We have to go live our lives. That is how we move forward and honor their memory. And it always really stayed with me. I am deeply struck by the intensity with which life seems to be vibrating these days. And it brings me encouragement and some courage as well to speak to AJ today, who is living in the Palestinian world inside of the Jewish world of Israel. It's like a world within a world within a world, and there's AJ, and I find that encouraging. It is only when we build bridges, when we question our assumptions, when we are willing to take in another point of view that I strongly believe we bring the pendulum swing out from the extreme and back to center for a moment. Now, if history is any predictor, eventually the pendulum seems to swing the other way and then is eventually brought back again. And perhaps it is true that the pendulum would swing no matter what. But it is my great hope that eventually, if enough people are pulling from the extremes back to center, that we reach a place where the pendulum swing is not quite so intense. I would encourage you to think about also how you formed the closely held beliefs and perspectives that you hold. What is it that you believe super strongly in? And what do you think it takes to change your mind? I would love to hear your thoughts about this. Drop me a line at podcast at artofchange.com. Share your thoughts, your questions, ideas for other guests, and anything else that you want to tell me. If you have questions that you want to follow up with, with AJ, tell you what, send them to me. I'll forward them on and I'll make sure to post those answers later. And as for the rest, I just want to thank you. Thank you for listening to The Changed Podcast. I appreciate your support. I appreciate your energy. I appreciate your stories. And I wish you the kind of experiences in life you're excited to tell stories about. 